our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 to 29. You will have realized, having heard Nicole read it, that this passage is a prayer. We are listening this morning to David's prayer in response to the word of the Lord. And I'll say a lot about it, but it'd be something of a disaster if in doing that, I managed to lose sight of what maybe most strikes us when we first read this text. That David was deeply moved by the revelation of God's word. David welcomed his words. David reveled in his plans, delighted in his promises, exalted in their maker, pleaded for their fulfillment. As one writer puts it, we sense that Yahweh's grace doomed David's worship to inadequacy. God has impressed him. And so David prays, what I think is one of the most striking and beautiful prayers in the Bible. And I worry that my many words about it will take away that sense of wonder. But to begin to help us find our way into this prayer this morning, let me make this simple observation that I'll return to as near the end of the sermon. That in this prayer, David makes only one request. Only one petition. Now he repeats it with a little added detail in verse 29, but the core of it is there in the end of verse 25. It's five words in the English. Do as you have spoken. So affected has David been by this word of the Lord. So sure is he of the goodness of God's promises that this is what his heart wants above all. Do as you have spoken. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that that simple statement is at the heart of our praying. That the Lord's promises are what give prayer its passion, its boldness, its confidence. You heard David use the word courage. That's what I think we see in this text. And how a person prays, of course, tells you a great deal about how they understand their relationship with the God to whom they're praying. We then have the privilege of hearing David's prayer this morning. This too is the word of God. And as we consider it, my hope is that it will lead us to reflect on how we pray, on how we relate to the God who speaks his promises to us in his word. Let me suggest a structure that will follow here in the sermon. I'll talk about this text in two rather unequal uh, divisions, but they're so unequal that the second one's longer, and I'll divide that into two as well. So the two unequal parts are very simple. We'll look first at David's posture, and then at David's prayer. Now, the posture is only verse 18a, okay? Just the first part of verse 18, though I'll bring in 17 from last week as well. 
And then, of course, it's the prayer from halfway through 18 all the way to the end of the text. And since that's a large block, I'm dividing that into two parts, the prayer into two parts. And just to stay with our nicely alliterated headings, we'll call those two parts David's praise and David's petition. So, David's posture and then David's prayer. And in that prayer, there's praise and then petition. So there's structure for those of you who like that. First then, David's posture. David's posture is what we find briefly noted in verse 18a of our text, where it sort of says what seems rather matter-of-factly, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. <laughs> and you could just zip right past that half verse and get to the prayer itself, but if you did, I think you'd be missing something significant to the passage. As I said at the outset, David's prayer is a response brothers and sisters, and I cannot stress that enough. The ESV translators help us by signaling that with the word they put there, then, in verse 18. Then. That is, then, in response to what had just happened, King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, verse 17 at the end of last week's text is the summary of what had just happened, of course. So look at that. It says, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Nathan spoke to David. But of course, the point is that it was by this means that David heard the word of the Lord. It was the word of the Lord that came to Nathan, verse 4 said from last week. And I admit that this is a minor point, but it's a point that has been sticking with me through the week, so I feel like I must say it. I think it's important to see that the word of the Lord didn't come directly to David, we might say, but was spoken to him by Nathan. Because you read this extraordinary prayer, it's important, I think, to see that that prayer was not in response to a vision that David himself had had, or to words that David himself had heard directly from the Lord, if you will. Nathan was the one whose experience is described in verse 17 as having all these words and all this vision. That same verse makes clear that Nathan spoke in accordance with those words and that vision. And it's to that that David responds. And, and friends, the minor point I'm making here is that you and I don't need direct words or visions from the Lord to hear from the Lord. What we need is the word of the Lord. And that word, of course, almost always comes to us through others. Now, of course, in the pages of the scriptures, this is what's happening here. We're reading words of human authors and editors but they're words which are for us the very word of God, just as Nathan's words were to David. Preach the word, Paul writes to Timothy, because what you and I need more than anything is to hear the word of the Lord. We hear it in the pages of the scriptures. We hear it as it is faithfully preached and taught in the church. And I think that 
I say all this because I think the most important thing to understand about David's prayer is this, that it was a response to what he heard. When you and I hear the word of the Lord, it, if, we hear, if we really hear it, it deeply affects us. It changes us. It creates a longing in our heart. That's what I think happened to David. Which is why I'm suggesting verse 18a is so important because what does David do there? The text says, he went in and sat before the Lord. Okay, he went in where exactly? Well, the key is that it was where he would be before the Lord. And that's a signal for us. You may recognize that phrase, before the Lord, that language was used two weeks ago in chapter 6. It was used five times in chapter 6, where before the Lord is the language that was used when David was rejoicing, when David was leaping, when David was dancing, or David was offering sacrifices before the ark. Remember? As it was coming into Jerusalem? So that in this context, the words before the Lord were the description of the reality of what it meant for David to do those things before the ark. We talked about that. Well, I think then this means David's gone to the ark, is what I think verse 18 means. But where's the ark? Remember? This now takes us back to the, the whole setup that we talked about at the beginning of chapter 7 in verse 2. Look there, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Remember, David wanted to change that. It was the tent, if you recall, that David himself had erected when he brought the ark successfully into Jerusalem in chapter 6. It was in accordance with the regulations concerning how it was to be handled, etc. But here he is, and he goes into that tent, into that tent that he had at the beginning of chapter 7 wanted to replace. And the ESV says, he sat there which uh, maybe to your ears just sounds like he was being all casual about it, right? Might as well be comfortable. Sit down. No. It is exceptionally unusual to describe someone as sitting to pray in the Bible. Now, you get people who sit to teach, sit to do other things. Jesus sits to teach. Rabbis sit to teach. But to sit to pray. Now, maybe there are instances of it, but I could not find another single instance of that in the scriptures on my limited search. What then would be the point? Well, I think, and a few other commentators suggest, that the point may well be that to sit is the description of the action of the king. David's the king. The king sits to portray his authority as king. We kind of get that in our modern day context even. But you see, the key is, now, 
where's this king sitting? Where is he doing this? It's not in his own royal cedar house, right? I mean, I, did you hear Marion read the psalm? You heard it. In verse 27 of Psalm 89, it says, the Lord says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The highest of the kings of the earth is sitting where? Before the Lord in the tent. David had just been told that he and his sons were sons of God. Princes, if you will, of the great king. David sits before the Lord. You see, what's lost on us as we read in English here, it's a small thing, is that the verb that translated to sit in verse 18 is the same verb that in verse 1 of this chapter is translated as live. The king lived in his house, verse 1 of chapter 7 says. It's the same verb, and it has that full semantic range of could mean live, could mean sit. But the point is there's a parallel here. David's in his royal house in verse 1. He lived there. We talked last week about how David in that royal cedar palace, things seemed pretty good at that point. David wasn't expecting this word from the Lord. So here I think you begin to see the impact of the word of the Lord upon David as he moves from his grand house where he had been living or sitting in his kingly authority into the tent. Because David's now where he belongs. He knows it's where he belongs. He's sitting as kings do. But now he sits before the Lord. Recognizing anew, I think, the authority of the true king. David didn't see his house of cedar in this tent in quite the same way he did, perhaps, at the beginning of chapter 7. And I know that you and I don't have a tent with an Ark of the Covenant to go into to pray. But surely there is a relevant point here. That when the word of the Lord has so impacted us that we are compelled to respond in prayer, we must do so before the Lord. And I think sometimes that might require seeking out a place where you are particularly mindful of the presence of the Almighty God. And I would even encourage you to do that, in fact. The posture of prayer matters. So now then, let me consider David's prayer. It begins, as prayer almost always does, with praise. And notice this, how in this section it's characterized by praise, I'm suggesting in verses 18 to 24. Notice that David's praise in the present rests on an understanding of what God has done. Of what God has done in the past, and together with that, what God has promised to do in the future. In other words, you are able to praise God when you can see in both directions. Now, you can't see everything, but you can see enough. You can see enough to praise God for His grace in the past, and you know enough about the promises of God to marvel at the future grace that He'll display. As one author puts it, what undergirds David's prayer is the fundamental biblical principle of the primacy of grace. That whatever human beings do or say takes place through that grace and in response to it. So it's all about grace in the past and grace promised for the future. And it's all interwoven, isn't it? 
It's just like the way we pray. David's not linear in this prayer. Neither are we. Not usually, anyway. David begins in verse 18 by reflecting on his own past. Look at the language. Here's the king sitting in the tent before the Lord. What does he start with? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? You see how that's looking to the past. How can David fathom why Yahweh's plan ever centered on him and brought him to this place? There's no answer for that, except what we read last week in verse 8, where the Lord told David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. It was the Lord who had made David leader over Israel. Who am I? David says. True praise only comes from a person who is humbled by what the Lord has done in the past, the grace that's been shown them. But then David's astonishment at what the Lord has done thus far turns to even more astonishment in verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. You see how David moves now from the past to the future. And we talked some last week about the words in, ver in, in verses 11 to 16 of this chapter about the future promises that the Lord made to David concerning David's house and the establishment of his kingdom forever. So that the conclusion in verse 16 from last week was, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, now we get a clue as to David's grasp of the significance of what the Lord spoke to him. In the end of verse 19 here, in our passage, is somewhat enigmatic. You'll find it translated very differently in different English versions. But I suggest to you that the ESV has it essentially right, as I have struggled to interpret it. The end of verse 19, the ESV, David prays, This is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. David realized that this word of the Lord that he's now responding to, more than being not simply for him personally, obviously, it wasn't even restricted in its significance to his promised line of descendants, which you, he would get from what the Lord said. It wasn't even restricted to the nation of Israel. It somehow, David understood, concerned mankind. The Hebrew there is Adam, the name of the first human, and the word for the whole human race, humanity. David understood that the words he'd heard were like the promise to Abraham, an affirmation of the Lord's purpose to bless Adam, mankind. We've talked about this more than once in the last few weeks, how the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 was that through his offspring, the nation of Israel, blessing would reach all the families of the earth. 
I think verse 19 is monumentally suggesting that David now understands that this would happen through his own promised offspring, whose kingdom the Lord has just promised to establish forever. That's why the Lord's words, or instruction, as the ESV has it, it's just Torah in Hebrew, this instruction was for mankind, David says. What an astonishing promise of grace David is glimpsing here. David hardly knows what to say. Verse 20, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. I think this is so helpful as we think about how we pray. I don't think verse 20 is just about the Lord knowing everything about David when he says that, right? For you know your servant, O Lord God. I don't think it's just the Lord knowing everything about David or knowing everything about us. I mean, that's true, of course. The Lord knows everything about us. But I think this is something not different than that, but deeper than that. I think this is, in a way, David's answer to his first question in verse 18, which was, who am I? The answer is, you're the one God has known, David. You're the one God has chosen, selected. I think this could, and I think maybe it should, be translated in the English past tense this way. For you have known your servant. David, the king, acknowledges what God's people must always acknowledge, that the Lord's plan arises solely out of the Lord's own choice and desire. Look at verse 21. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Do you see the lovely progression there? The Lord knows David in verse 20, and by the end of it, the end result of it, by the end of verse 21, is that David now knows what is in the heart of God. David knows God's plan, God's purposes. That's what happens when we're known by the Lord. We come to see the greatness of His purposes. It all starts with His promise, David says in verse 21. I think that promise language there is a reference to Abraham, to the promise given Abraham, the promise that was then narrowed to the tribe of Judah, the promise that David now understands is to be fulfilled through one of his own descendants. It was because of the Lord's promise, but then according to the Lord's own heart, David says, that now this revelation has come to him. In other words, it has nothing whatsoever to do with David's worthiness or importance. It came from God himself. That principle's everywhere in the Bible. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, easy to remember, Deuteronomy 7, 7, tells us, the Lord did not set his love on Israel. The Lord did not choose Israel because Israel was a more impressive nation than the others. Rather, Deuteronomy 7, verse 8 then says, it is because the Lord loves you. The Lord set his love on you because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You hear it? 
The biblical logic is wonderfully circular at this point. The Lord loves you because he loves you. We saw that last week, right? Ultimately, what is the difference between David and Saul according to verses 14 and 15 of our chapter? You remember this? The Lord says he knows David. <laughs> he also knows that David's descendants will commit iniquity. The Lord promises discipline when that happens, but what ultimately becomes the difference? What makes it possible for David to receive this word from the Lord? Verse 15, the Lord says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. That was in the Psalm too, wasn't it? That Marion read. So struck by this, verse 33 of the Psalm. Verse 32, I will punish their transgression with the rod. Verse 33, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. In other words, the Lord showed grace to David that the Lord did not show to Saul. Why? Because that was what was in the Lord's heart to do, brothers and sisters. There can be no other answer than that. We need to hear this. The Lord's promise that expresses the Lord's purpose for Abraham, for Israel, for David, ultimately, as David recognizes here, through all of them to the whole world, the Lord's purpose in all of this arises from within himself. And David's breath is just taken away by this. And I guess then that my question for you and for my own self is this. Do we still know what it's like to marvel like this at the sovereign grace of God? Have we retained any of the wonder that perhaps we once knew? That the God of all creation would know and love you? That you would then be privileged to come to know something of God's heart and God's plans? I know that you are not the king of Israel from whose descendants will come the Messiah and the future king of all people. <laughs> but do we not marvel that the same God who knew David now knows us? And it's as a result of the promise that is made to David that it's according to the Lord's own heart that in fact the same God who spoke to David is now extending his kingdom through us as we follow the great descendant of David who's promised here. As we follow the Christ whom the Apostle Paul says died for us. While we were still sinners, the king who now sits <laughs> at the right hand of his father in heaven making intercession for us awaiting his glorious return. I mean, brothers and sisters, think about this. What we know far surpasses what David knew in that moment. Right? 
the wonders, the greatnesses of what God has brought about, to use David's language, just keep increasing as you move through the biblical revelation. I guess then what I'm asking is, do our hearts not begin to move in the direction of verse 22 when we reflect then on this sovereign grace of God, past and future? Look at the logical connection in verse 22. Therefore, David says, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. There's none like him. Is this where your inner thoughts and heart move? It reminds me of what Hannah prayed back in 1 Samuel 2. Way back in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. Remember this? There is none holy like the Lord, Hannah prayed. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. The God who had answered Hannah's prayer way back then with the birth of Samuel had continued then to be faithful to his great purpose for his people and for the whole world. Now in the word that has come to David, this is why David knows exactly the same thing that Hannah knew in her prayer. David knew the Lord's greatness because of the Lord's word. The same is true for us. What does Paul say in Romans 10? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, we could just keep going like this all day, brothers and sisters, in this prayer. I won't uh, dwell now on verses 23 and 24 at this point. You can look at them here. David's thought moves back in those verses to reflect again. I mean, it's just this is the prayer, right? It's in the past. It's in the future. Now he's going back again where he's reflecting on the greatness of what the Lord has done. Only this time it's specifically with his people Israel. I think the point is essentially the same as it was for Israel regarding uh, as it was for David and David's house. Who am I? What is my house? David had asked. It was all because of the grace of God. In the same way David knows and that Israel is unique only because she's a people redeemed and preserved by the Lord. Verse 23, Israel's the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. He redeemed them in the Exodus. He has preserved them. Verse 24, you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. Which is actually pretty significant for David to say, right? Because that forever language, he's drawing explicitly from what the Lord had said to him, not last week, but in last week's text, about how the Lord would establish the house of David forever. Here's David bringing these two things together, isn't he? He understands that the promise to establish the kingdom of his offspring forever is the way that the Lord will establish his people forever. Which is a big deal in terms of how these covenants work together. We can't go there now. We're not going to go there now. But you note takers, you might jot down Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 40, for a passage that promises the forever existence of God's people. It's stunning. Leviticus 26. Can't go there now. This is David's praise. I hope you sense David's overwhelmed, magnificent praise for what the Lord has done, what the Lord has promised to do. So then it just naturally leads us right into the petition in verses 25 to 29, I think. Because the petition rests squarely on the praise. 
and the reasons for it. And now, verse 25. This is, if you will, the conclusion from what has just been said. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Do what you've promised to do, Lord. I think that could revolutionize your prayer life. If you learn to pray the promises of God, that's all David's doing. He's praying the promises of God. Convert your astounding promises into historical reality. Now, I think if you go one level down, that that's what David prays because that's what David wants. The word that's been spoken to him has created a longing in his heart. He believes the promises of God. He knows that the promises of God are good. He can't know how they'll all work out through history. We know far more than David did. But David longs for what God has promised more than anything else. And it was not, please see this, it was not because David wanted the glory of his name to go on forever. We've already covered David's humility here. Who am I? He prays. I'm telling you, that's not false humility. David's not caught up with his own concerns or desires or ambitions here. No, David's ultimate desire is for the glory of God. Look there in verse 26. He says it. Do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever. Saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. In other words, God's great goodness towards his people has this greater purpose to display his own greatness to the nations, the nations of the world, and then even beyond that. This reminds me, as I studied this, of what David said all those many years ago when he came up to face Goliath. This is 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 46. This may ring a bell. David says, as he's coming to meet Goliath, he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. From the beginning of the rise of David to be the king of Israel to now the high point of David's kingship, it's the same motivation. And you know what's most wonderful of all, I think, as we consider that petition that emerges then from the praise in David's prayer, it is that David's petition is being realized. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 verse 5 that God called him to preach the gospel of his son for the sake of his name among all the nations. The kingdom of David's offspring is, of course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. God has realized his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 11, right after he explains that it's, in fact, through the church, through this people of God, that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known 
to the rulers and the authorities, not just of the nations, but even in the heavenly places. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the news that in him, the blessing promised to Abraham, prayed for in this moment of salvation history by David, has come to the nations of the world. David took God's promises and prayed he would bring them to pass. Do as you have spoken. Brothers and sisters, isn't that what we still pray today? Every time we pray that God's name be hallowed. Every time we ask for God's kingdom to come. Every time we pray for God's will to be done. Do as you have spoken. David's prayer is being answered. The final king of David's dynasty has come. Yet, we know that his kingship is still to be fully, publicly, universally displayed. That's what we pray for, isn't it? Do as you have spoken. For as David reminds us in verse 28 of our text, O Lord God, you are God. And your words are true. Our petition is sure to be granted. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.